Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Amanda Marcotte, senior politics writer at Salon, who assesses the danger of Trump supporters' threat of violence as the former disgraced president was indicted on 37 federal felony charges in a Miami courtroom. Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, who condemned a debt ceiling deal that fast-tracked construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline and asserted corporate greed is killing us. And Mel Gertov, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Portland State University, who talks about the urgent need to reduce rising U.S.-China tensions to avert future conflict. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In Germany, the far-right, anti-immigrant, climate-change-denying party, Alternative for Germany, or AFD, is rising rapidly in the polls ahead of next year's state elections. AFD could overtake mainstream parties in some regions in eastern Germany where the extremist party has a strong following amid high levels of economic frustration. During the last national election, AFD won 10.3 percent of the vote, but is now polling between 17 and 19 percent, a record high rivaling the ruling Social Democrats. Thus far, mainstream parties have refused to work in coalition with AFD, but that commitment is collapsing among some elements of the center-right Christian Democratic Party. The popularity of the AFD has grown as inflation and energy prices spiked after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The far right is gaining popularity across other nations in Western Europe, including France, as authoritarian parties in Italy and Sweden serve in ruling coalition governments. Interior Secretary Nancy Faser blamed the AFD for encouraging violent attacks against refugees. In 2021, AFD was placed under state surveillance on suspicion of working to undermine Germany's constitution. A year after the murder of British journalist Dom Phillips and indigenous researcher Bruno Parreira in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, Brazilian prosecutors arrested Ruben Dario da Silva Villar, the alleged head of an armed illegal international fishing operation. Phillips and his guide Pereira were on a trip reporting on the efforts of Amazon locals to defend the rainforest from criminal gangs that were illegally catching fish from Brazil's protected indigenous lands and selling them in neighboring towns in Colombia and Peru. Evidence gathered by investigators suggests Silva Villar enlisted locals to shadow Phillips and Pereira during their four-day trip through the remote Havari Valley ending in the murder of the two men. The Guardian reports that in addition to VR, four local fishermen were charged with murder. During remembrances of Phillips in Brazil and Britain, an international network of journalists pledged to finish the book Phillips was writing, titled How to Save the Amazon, Ask the People Who Know. 
colleagues say publication of the book on the Amazon's indigenous defenders is key to cementing Phillips' legacy and contributes to the defense of the rainforest. Earlier this spring, hundreds of festive partygoers packed the Metro nightclub for a Chicago Loves Drag fundraiser, as many Republican-controlled states like Tennessee passed laws to ban drag performances. The event was a fundraiser for drag performers and groups fighting the current GOP culture war on the LGBTQ community. Tennessee passed the first ban on drag performances in March amid a broad right-wing assault on gender-affirming health care. The state's drag ban was later overturned by a federal court for violating the First Amendment. But trans people continue to be the target of extremist protests and violent attacks as Republican legislatures across the U.S. have proposed and or passed a record number of anti-trans bills. In the face of these homophobic attacks, the LGBTQ community and their many allies have been defiant. On drag's biggest stage, TV's RuPaul's Drag Race, newly crowned Queen Sasha Colby dedicated her win to every trans person, past, present, and future. In mid-April, Grammy Award-winning artist Lizzo filled her Knoxville, Tennessee stage with several drag performers joining her in a protest song. She told the audience that people on the Internet demanded she cancel her shows in Tennessee. But the singer said, Why would I not come to the people who need to hear this message the most? This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Donald Trump became the first former president in U.S. history to be indicted on federal felony charges when he faced 37 counts in the classified documents case in a Miami courtroom. During his arraignment on June 13th, Trump pled not guilty to 31 counts of violating the Espionage Act through willful retention of classified records, plus six counts including obstruction of justice and false statements, that stem from his alleged efforts to block the investigation. Trump's valet, Walt Nauta, was also charged with six felonies related to the alleged cover-up. Federal Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, will be overseeing the twice-impeached president's case. Early on, Judge Cannon disrupted the document's investigation by issuing rulings favorable to Trump that a conservative appeals court later overturned. Trump, who faces a New York indictment in the Hush Money case and multiple criminal investigations for his attempted coup to reverse the results of the 2020 presidential election, is fundraising off his legal troubles and remains the frontrunner in the race to become the Republican Party's 2024 presidential nominee. Trump loyalists like Republican Representative Andy Biggs of Arizona recently ominously declared that the nation has reached a war phase, an eye for an eye. Your reporter spoke with Amanda Marcotte, senior politics writer at Salon.com and author, who assesses the danger in many Republican legislators' use of violent rhetoric 
in Trump's defense and their calls for retribution. After January 6th, I think that right now there is a lack of, of real interest in people sticking their neck out for Donald Trump in that way for two reasons. I think a lot of people misunderstand domestic terrorism. It's it usually, especially if it's organized or if it's groups of people, it's geared towards a specific goal. So January 6th, they were actually trying to overturn the election, trying to stop the certification of it, right? I don't know that they are convinced that their doing violence will stop this indictment, that will stop this trial or anything like that. You know, at best, it delays it for a couple of days, right? And then it might even backfire because they get reassigned to a courthouse that doesn't have Eileen Cannon as the judge. Right. <laughs> Terrorists are smarter or, or more strategic than I think a lot of people think. So I, I'm somewhat confident that that's not going to happen. That said, I want to be really clear that Trump and other Republicans stoking the idea that violence is an acceptable response to their grievances is having all sorts of knock-on effects across the country. They may not do violence for Donald Trump's indictment, but they're taking those violent urges and they're taking it out on black people, Asian Americans, Latino Americans, and LGBTQ people. That's where I think a lot of that violence is getting directed right now. Well, Amanda, whatever happens in the classified documents case, the most heinous crime committed by Trump is his leading the multi-pronged conspiracy to overthrow the 2020 presidential election when he lost and supporting the violent insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th that resulted in the deaths of five people and hundreds of injuries. It's kind of inexplicable that the Department of Justice, Merrick Garland, hasn't brought charges against Trump in these two and a half years. Are you optimistic Jack Smith and the DOJ, Merrick Garland et al., are on their way to bringing some charges or is trying to overthrow the government a crime without a penalty? I am optimistic. Um, I wasn't before because I do think Merrick Garland's wasted an entire year hoping this would go away, and then it didn't. And so when he realized that it wasn't going to go away, that he was going to have to man up and and hire somebody to actually deal with the situation, he did hire someone who seems to be very serious about this. And I, I actually have been impressed by Jack Smith. The reports are that the grand jury investigation of the January 6th is going really well. I think that he just unfortunately lost a year because of Merrick Garland screwing around. But I, I am optimistic that he's going to bring charges. And, I, you know, I would say that people who treat these two cases as entirely separate are missing the point to a certain extent because they're not. It's clear to me with the timeline and everything that Trump probably took those classified documents in some kind of harebrained scheme after January 6th, right? He, it, it was only, it was less than two weeks later that he had those boxes packed up and moved. So I think that this classified document scheme is in his mind, if, if nothing else, like a continuation of the coup effort. He was like, well, that didn't work, so I'm going to take all these boxes, and at some point I'll figure out how I can leverage them to do you know, whatever he thinks he can do with them. I, I don't think he's thought this through, mm. but I do think he took those documents for leverage. Well, Amanda, I guess just uh, one final thing I would ask you. Um, do you think 
we all as uh, citizens need to be more engaged in this. It's not just a spectator sport, is it? I mean, we have to pressure the government to hold people to account. I, I think it's obvious from your review of this two-and-a-half-year gap that we need to, right? Yes, and I think we also need to hold ourselves accountable because it's clear that we can't ask the justice system to handle the Trump problem for us. Even if they indict him, even if they prosecute him, there's always a chance. Like this, he's got a judge in his pocket. I mean, that's unfortunate. That alone could ruin this case. Mm -hmm. um, you never know. A jury could have a, a MAGA person or two on it that tank it. The justice system is too chaotic and in many cases too corrupt after Republicans messing with it for decades to just expect it to save us. And I think that, you know, I, I would love for Donald Trump to go to jail. No one deserves it more, <laughs> but we can't count on it and we can't count on him not winning an election, even if he is in jail. So it's on us to make sure he does not get elected again. We're, you know, we're in a very dire situation in this country. That was Amanda Marcotte, senior politics writer at Salon.com and author. Find links to her recent articles on Trump's federal indictment and more analysis and commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As part of four days of national protest, hundreds of climate activists and their allies rallied in front of the White House on June 8th, with 50 risking arrest, to condemn the Biden administration and Congress for pushing through the debt ceiling deal that fast-tracked completion of the frack gas Mountain Valley Pipeline in Virginia and West Virginia. The action occurred on a day when the air quality in the Northeast U.S. was hazardous due to climate change-impacted wildfires burning in Canada prompting many activists to say this would be a perfect day for Biden to declare a climate emergency. If completed, the 303-mile pipeline would carry gas that would pollute the region's air and water. Speakers at the rally included frontline people whose property and homes have already been directly impacted by construction of the pipeline, which has been denied permits by state regulatory agencies that had been upheld multiple times by the Fourth Circuit Court. One element in the debt ceiling agreement, pushed by West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who has long-standing financial ties to the fossil fuel industry, would require any future court appeals to be heard in the D.C. Circuit, where the pipeline's builders expect more favorable treatment. A possible 75-mile extension of the pipeline into North Carolina is being considered. Southern Appalachia has long been an environmental sacrifice zone, and people are now demanding an end to it. One of the speakers at the rally was Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who represents Detroit, Michigan. In this segment, produced by Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus, Representative Tlaib talks about the terrible impact of industrial pollution in her own district and why she believes corporate greed is killing us. I want to thank you all so much for being here. I know thank they want me you. to face there, but your courage being out here is so important. For me as a mother to see D.C. schools say it's too unsafe to allow children to play outside today. That's where we're at now because we're not moving with the urgency that is needed. So thank you for being out here. Thank you. You know, the White House needs to understand this is not only a climate emergency and a climate crisis, but the fact of the matter is corruption needs to stop. 
Instead of the fossil fuel industry inside, right now, the White House drafting these bills, it should be the people of the United States. It should not be corporations that fuel fueled with profit and corporate greed, because corporate greed is killing us every single day. You know, I grew up in Southwest Detroit, where I thought it was normal. I thought it was normal that my friends had gotten asthma, respiratory issues. I thought it was normal that it smelled like that. I thought it was normal to have trucks rumbling by my park where we played or our schools. It's not normal. It's not normal to play outside and come inside and smell like rotten eggs because of the hydrogen sulfide. It's not normal for us to have literally notices saying you can't play outside today. It's too polluted. All I keep thinking about is all the children in my district right now having asthma attacks because of this. Because we're not moving with urgency. Because people are paying for access to the White House. They're paying to write these bills. Time is up. This is a crisis that is not going anywhere. It's just getting worse. And we need to move with the urgency that is needed. Because we have a right to breathe clean air. And we shouldn't have to beg the president or any administration for to do something about it. We shouldn't have to get arrested to breathe clean air. We shouldn't have to sit there and push and push for the human dignity that we deserve. Enough. I keep telling people, how many more scientists, how many more times you gotta study this? I'm tired of getting studied, y'all. I'm tired of them coming back and saying, you're right. Black and brown communities are on the front lines. They're literally, literally dying, getting sick. While we don't even have universal health care. While many are going bankrupt because of the public health impact. Do you know what one asthma attack can do to a whole family? Because the bills that come, it's time. It's time to say no more. Mount Valley Pipeline should have never been part of the debt crisis deal.
that was Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan speaking at a climate crisis rally at the White House on June 8th. Learn more about groups opposing the Mountain Valley Pipeline by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. While corporate media has been preoccupied with coverage of Russia's war in Ukraine over the past year, U.S. relations with China have deteriorated. The chill in diplomatic relations between Washington and Beijing has been accompanied by dangerous maneuvers involving U.S. and Chinese naval vessels and aircraft that each side blames the other for being unnecessarily aggressive and provocative. Chinese officials have long condemned U.S. policy toward Taiwan asserting there is only one China, with which it seeks eventual unification. The Biden administration has angered the Chinese by appearing to depart from the decades-long policy of strategic ambiguity, where the U.S. is intentionally vague on how it would respond to any future Chinese attack on Taiwan. After the U.S. military spotted what they described as a Chinese spy balloon in North American airspace in February, Secretary of State Antony Blinken canceled a planned visit to China for talks, but that trip has now been rescheduled for June 18th. It's hoped that the resumption of diplomacy will help reduce tensions. Your reporter spoke with Mel Gertov, professor emeritus of political science at Oregon's Portland State University and author of the book Engaging China, Rebuilding Sino-American Relations. Here he talks about the urgent need to reduce rising U.S.-China tensions in order to avert future conflict. We tend to see Taiwan as as separate from uh, Beijing's security interests, but that's uh, that's not not correct because we need to look at the world through through Chinese eyes as well as our own. Strategic ambiguity um, has a, a pretty by now a pretty long history, about 45 years dating back to uh, to when uh, the U.S. and China established formal diplomatic relations. And from that time uh, until now, it has actually served uh, both sides uh, pretty well. I mean, on, on one hand, for the United States, it has suggested that the United States might or might not come to Taiwan's protection in the event of, uh, of Chinese attack. Uh, but it has uh, stayed clear of making a, a formal statement on behalf of Taiwan's defense because the U.S. knew, at least until recently, that uh, to do so would be to run smack up against uh, Chinese national interests. And so we keep things, um, or have been keeping things, uh, ambiguous. Uh, meanwhile, on the Chinese side, they have always said, I mean, going back to Mao's time, that peaceful reunification would be the preferred way to bring about Taiwan's unification with uh, with China. But on the other hand, they have never said that the use of force would, would not be used. In fact, more recently, they have been even uh, beginning to say that they're rethinking the whole policy of peaceful reunification. They are essentially responding to changes in uh, American policy toward China that has essentially eroded 
the strategic ambiguity principle, and especially with regard to the Republican right wing, tried to replace it with strategic clarity. And that clarity is precisely the sort of thing which, if carried through on a number of fronts, political and, uh, and military in particular, is going to uh, result in war with China. I mean, I have no doubt about that, and I think all my colleagues who are close observers of, of China, I think, would agree with that. Uh, for the for the right wingers, and unfortunately supported by many liberals in, in uh, both houses of Congress, uh, that clarity means that the United States would actually be quite willing to see Taiwan become an independent country, uh, which violates one of the central principles that we have always subscribed to, namely that we believe in one China. In fact, uh, President Biden repeated that when he was with uh, Xi Jinping in uh, in Bali. Uh, and so it would it would amount to um, accepting uh, Taiwan as an uh, and even advocating for it as an independent country. Uh, it would mean that uh, the U.S. would be fully upgrading its uh, diplomatic ties to Taiwan. It would mean that the U.S. would be pumping even more military aid which, than it already is, which is quite substantial, uh, into Taiwan. And uh, in all those ways, it would turn the whole situation around in which Taiwan becomes an American protectorate. Uh, and by the way, not necessarily uh, to, the, to the liking of the uh, folks on Taiwan themselves, uh, but that's, that's where things uh, are headed, especially if uh, the Republican right wing gets, uh, gets its way. What policy changes would you recommend the Biden administration undertake to both ease tensions and improve relations that would benefit both countries? The easiest thing to, to do would be to revert back to where we, we were in, in the Obama years with regard to Taiwan. That is to reaffirm uh, strategic ambiguity and demonstrate it by reducing military aid, except for purely defensive reasons, to Taiwan, by not sending such high-level uh, people to, uh, to Taiwan, and significantly reducing the direct assistance that the United States gives to Taiwan in the form of military advisors and trainers. Uh, all of these things uh, were, were not part of U.S. policy in the Obama years, and there's no reason to have them now. But at the same time that we do that, we would also want China to agree to stop uh, its air exercises that go over the median line between the mainland and Taiwan or which go into Taiwan's air defense zone. Uh, in other words, stop harassment of Taiwan. I, I truly believe that a deal can be worked out uh, that would essentially produce the status quo anti-Trump uh, and would uh, restore uh, peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. That was Mel Gertov, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Portland State University and author of the book, Engaging China, Rebuilding Sino-American Relations. Find a link to Mel's recent article titled The Taiwan Imbroglio and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WOOL in Bellows Falls, Vermont, KTWH in Two Harbors, Minnesota, KSER in Everett, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>